Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday people share real and personal stories of encounters with God. I'm your host, Robin, and I am here with Katie and Lindy. And today we have Carol's story, and she's Lindy's friend. So we are going to let Lindy tell you about it. Carol is my friend, and I'm actually very proud to call her friend. Back in 2013, after my mastectomy, when I had my reconstruction, after I was cleared for workout, Carol was my trainer. And I call her my little chihuahua. And in my phone, her contact says, Carol, my savior, um, because she just spoke so much life into me about my ability physically. And she's, she was just an incredible, incredible encouragement right at the point of, of my life when I need it. She has an awesome story because she grew up um, in a Jewish home. And um, you're going to hear how Jesus continued to pursue her all of her life and how she met him. I tell you what, usually um, I don't have the privilege to be able to sit in the room and listen to someone tell their story because a lot of times Robin does, the ones that we've been doing since COVID just through Zoom on her own, but God gave us the privilege of being able to sit in the room with her. And let me tell you, the Holy Spirit was hovering because she speaks so much life into each one of us. And I'm just thrilled for you all to hear. So here's Carol. Hey everyone. So as I mentioned, I'm Carol. Um, a little bit about my background. Um, I was born Carol Schwartz. And for those of you that don't know, that is the Smith of Jewish family names. And so I grew up in a Jewish family and I'm very proud of my history. I was taught to believe in God. My family um, is of German Jewish descent. We were like most American Jews, fairly secular, but um, definitely practiced the holidays and made note of that. I grew up in a Jewish Catholic neighborhood, kind of split Italian and Jews. We get along well. But as for as long as I can remember, I was trying to peek behind the curtain into my Catholic friends' lives. I was begging God to reveal himself to me, sort of like, do you remember that book? Hey God, it's me, Margaret. Yes. yes. And so I was um, completely blind to his quiet presence in my life, but I was searching for him. I was attending Sunday school with my childhood friends. I went to Catholic church with my roommate in college and various other student ministries with sorority sisters. And I even attended a small group for an entire year um, where I sat quietly in the background, sort of waiting for some miraculous vision or sign that God was there, that he was calling to me. But I was deaf to it. I, I couldn't see him and I couldn't hear him. And I just challenged him in those moments, like, I've shown up. I'm here. I've been looking for you since I'm a little girl. I'm doing things that my family would not necessarily approve of. I'm doing things that I feel are separating me from all the people that I know and love. And so where are you? You know, where is God in this? And I walked away after the year in this small group and kind of pursuing him, I thought, Pretty consistently in college, I decided that this was not the space for me. So a few years later after grad school, I felt something stir again, and I started looking for God again. And I found myself one evening in a community church in Atlanta, the Buckhead Community Church. And that evening, a former rabbi was the guest speaker, and he was talking about his journey to faith. Um, his daughter had come home from college one day and announced that she believed in Jesus Christ. And he, and I believe his wife's name was Judy, begged her to give them one year to prove her wrong. 
and they were going to do research and prove her wrong. And she would remain silent about her faith. And so that's what they did. They both kind of divided up the Bible, different books to basically give her evidence that Jesus Christ is not the Messiah and that the Jews are still waiting for the Son of God. He said at some point in the process, both his wife and he separately came to understand that Christ was indeed the Messiah. That conversation was going to be a tough night at dinner. But I sat there listening to his lovely story, and I was still waiting. Um, Where was my sign? When was God going to tell me that this is the path that you should be taking. And so I read the books that he recommended. Um, I believe I read his book, but I don't remember what it's called. And I went on from that night pursuing my own life and my own path. So many years later, I had been married um, for about a year and a half. I had married a young man from rural Alabama who was raised in the Church of Christ, um, that my parents, if the boat was sinking, would rescue Chris before they pulled me out of the dark depths of the water. My parents, um, a lot of people probably question, my father and my mother's love for their daughters is truly unconditional. They would love me if I brought a goat home as my husband. They would love me if I tattooed my body, which for Jewish parents is a very big deal. And so they loved me. My sister was married to a Baptist from Kentucky, and I was marrying a Church of Christ boy from Northern Alabama, and that did not really deter them. But Chris and I were married. Um, I was older when I got married. Um, I was in my 30s, and we wanted to have babies pretty quickly, wanted a large family. We discovered about, I don't know, um, maybe six months after we were married that we were pregnant, pregnant with twins. And I had a great pregnancy and was very proud of the fact that I once again excelled and didn't get pregnant with one child, but got pregnant with two, naturally, and um, was having a healthy, great pregnancy. And I was in my 30th week, and I was standing in my kitchen making dinner. My husband was playing basketball, and I was pretty sure I had wet my pants. So I called my husband and said, I think I've just peed. (laughs) And with twins, they want you to get to 34 weeks. 32 is they'll handle it. He came home. We called the doctor. We went in. They checked me. Everything was good. I went home. And I don't know the time elapsed, but I woke up in a panic in the hospital. I didn't know where I was. Last thing I remembered was going to bed the night that I called my husband about thinking I had wet my pants. And I had learned that I'd been in the hospital for about a week and a half um, with them trying to save our twin boys. My husband was asleep in a chair next to my hospital bed and I saw the IV lines and I realized that at some point someone had told me the boys didn't survive and for the first time in my life I didn't think I was strong enough to survive something I didn't think I wanted to survive it and I was going to wake up my husband to have him rescue me but I heard this whisper I felt this comforting sort of steadying touch And I felt this peace wash over me, and I decided in that moment to just go back to sleep and face it tomorrow. And I know a lot of people would think that was my moment, but it wasn't. And so many years later, after the loss of our twin boys, we were now three children in to the four that we have because, um, and I think it's important to note that it was my stubborn willfulness in that moment after having attended church in small group 
I, I was going to hold on to who I was. And so my husband finally approached me, how did I feel about raising our children to believe in Christ? And I told him, probably not a conversation we should have had maybe 10, 12 years into marriage. <laughs> but we had this conversation. I knew his faith was important to him. And I had always been searching and I wasn't going to stand in the way of my children and having them as lost as I always felt in my relationship with God. So our agreement was I would bike ride on Sundays and he would take the kids to church. Well, like most husbands, getting three children out the door to church on a Sunday seemed an impossibility. So suddenly it was my job to do that. And so I found myself every Sunday doing what moms do, resentful that I had to get my kids ready for something that I didn't need to be at. And then I would sit in church and I would get angry because I felt like an outsider. I would look around and everyone around me seemed like they had the keys to some secret compartment or some secret club. And I was angry. I didn't like being there. I didn't like how it made me feel. I felt like I had given God a lot of chances. And now I was being dragged there because it was my job to get the kids out the door. So one Sunday, our pastor, it was an evangelical, non-denominational church, was giving a sermon, and the sermon ticked me off. It was about Proverbs 31. And I was standing there, and it was just revealing, you know, all these arguments that I had had with my husband about my worth, and I'm Cinderella, and nothing I do is good enough, and I'm just, you know, they're going to become president of the United States, and they're going to say, my dad sacrificed everything. And I just, you know, was caught up in my own desire to be praised. And I walked up to the pastor to challenge him about what he said about Proverbs. And because I grew up in a house where my dad, Proverbs was kind of an ever-present thing. And Pastor Mitchell looked at me um, in his way and very quietly asked me, have you ever read the Bible, Carol? And I was like, no. He's like, not just the Old Testament, because I started telling him, well, I know Leviticus and Exodus. And, you know, my dad put Proverbs up on the fridge. And he was like, no, the whole Bible. And I was like, did you miss the part where I'm Jewish? We don't cover the New Testament. And he just walked away from me, came back with a book from his office. It was a Bible in one year reading plan. And he just told me to read it. He said he would answer any questions, but he encouraged me not to research it. He encouraged me just to read it and to look for Jesus on every page. And so I did. Annoyed. A lot of it I didn't get, just went over my head. I was frustrated and would skim through parts that to me felt like endless list of names I couldn't pronounce. But there was Jesus. He was on every page. And, and the construct of a Bible in one year, at least the one that I was handed, was an Old Testament passage, a Proverbs, a Psalm, and a New Testament. And when you are reading the Gospels specifically in relationship to the Old Testament, it's almost impossible. Like you, you start saying, how, how did the Jews miss this? How did they not see this? How did my father, the most intelligent human being and most studied human being I've ever met, miss this? And I think in that moment of finding Jesus, that blindness, that deafness, through all those years of searching for him, it was like that veil was just torn. And all of a sudden, all those moments where I was like, where are you? He was there, just graciously, patiently waiting for me to put down my blindness so that I could see him. 
to open up my ears so I could hear him, so that I could feel his presence and know that he's been with me, relentlessly pursuing me as much as I was pursuing him. I just chose not to see it. So I was baptized at the age of 40 with my husband, which I felt like he had a reawakening in his faith through my journey, and we were baptized together. And I want to be able to tell you that I was a new person, (laughs) that I came up out of that water (laughs) um, and stayed that way. And um, that is not my story. I came up out of that water, and I would say for a few years, I had an ignited faith. And I had a good relationship that I was intimately pursuing to strengthen. But then I would say that I was pursuing it within the confines of my church and keeping it private and silent from the 40-year life that I lived before I knew Christ. And my reasons for that are many. Not One reason was not fear of my family's reaction. My family knew that I accepted Christ. They knew that I had been baptized. In fact, I, um, I'm sure my mom will hear this and will call in and correct me. But I'm pretty sure that they both said in that moment when I went home to talk to them that they'd known since I was a little girl that I had more than a Easter fleeting interest in Jesus of Nazareth from 1970, I think that film was, and um, they were not surprised. So that was not one of my reasons. I was outwardly very silent about my faith, and because of that, I think it cost me my faith in a lot of ways. My faith grew academic. It grew like an intellectual pursuit, and I put Jesus on this shelf and when I get past my excuses and my reasons, I think what I wanted is I wanted Jesus, but I wanted him on my terms, and I wanted to live my life, and I didn't want it to cost me anything. And so that's how I was for 10 years. And at the age of 50, dad called me. Um, they had moved to Arizona because he knew that he didn't have much time left, and um, he wanted to get my mom um, to live near one of his daughters. And Alabama, for my Jewish mother, was not a choice. Arizona seemed like a really good place for an old, retired Jewish New Yorker. And um, that's where my sister lived. (laughs) It is not therapy for needing to know that I was preferred over my sister. My mom prefers my sister. (laughs) So he called me and told me that he could no longer endure dialysis, that he was bleeding out, and that he was had his last dialysis treatment. Renal failure gives you 36 hours with the person that you love. So I jumped on a plane, I flew out there. And I just, God blessed me with 20 hours of my dad sitting in bed with him. And we just did what we always did. We talked and he challenged me to critically think about things. And we talked about his life, how blessed he was, what a gift he thought I was, my sister, his marriage to my mom, what he needed from me, because I was the strong one um, after he passed with my mom and my sister. What he needed from me in those moments because of my mom and my sister being unable to accept that there was no more medical intervention for him. And then he asked me about my faith, and it was the first conversation we had ever had, really, about my faith. And we talked about it, and he joked that he would know who was right first, because he was going to be there sooner. <laughs> and I just, I, I just, I hated God in that moment. I felt like I was being split in two between everything in the world that mattered to me. And knowing that he couldn't be the God 
that I wanted him to be, that his truth is his truth and I can't take what I want from it, that if I believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that I wasn't going to say goodbye to my dad and one day soon I was going to be separated from him for all of eternity. And, and I was being asked, I felt I was being asked to choose between my dad and my heavenly father. But the problem was, is that unlike the previous 40 years of my life, I knew Jesus now. And I couldn't deny him, but I didn't want to pay the price of what that meant for me. And my dad, before he dozed off, said to me, you're the strongest person I've ever known. God is bigger than you or me, and you don't know his plan for me. And that was the last thing my dad said. And he fell asleep, and I sat there, and I picked up my iPad to read the Bible, to read Proverbs, Isaiah, Psalms, anything that made my dad feel present. But instead, I read Romans, and I read Romans all night. And I read Romans 8 over and over again, and the Holy Spirit just kept pressing into me, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies who then is the one to condemn us? No one. So I was baptized at the age of 40, but I don't think I surrendered my life to Christ until the age of 50. And um, I think for 40 years, I denied him. For 10 years, I willfully held on to my self-reliance and my own strength, feeling a bit of peace that Jesus and I had a relationship because I accepted him. But what I had, I think, was maybe religion and not a relationship. And so after 50, I'm 54 now. It's good. Self-deprecating humor gets me out of my headspace with my dad. But now I think in the last four years, God has been teaching me to seek his strength, his peace, his wisdom, and his will, and to battle against the lure of my self-reliance and the kind of comfort and lure of the strength that he gifted me with. I realized that in my brokenness and in my mess, if I seek God's will, my brokenness and my mess doesn't consume me and it doesn't distance me from his protection. And what I discovered that night in my dad's bed sitting there was that I do that, that tether, guardrails, bumper rails, I don't know, is God's word. That through his word, I can set aside myself, I can set aside my fears, I can set aside my stubbornness. Most importantly, I can set aside my plans. And his word for me is truly living. It's my how-to manual. It's a love letter. It's my shield and it's my armor. And it's my GPS for my life. And if I don't read God's word, my day never goes (laughs) the way that he intends it to go. It becomes much more self-consumed rather than God pursuing, if that makes any sense. So for me, the Bible and God's word drowns out the noise of me. It drowns out the willful stubbornness that I battle every day. Most importantly, it battles um, the world's claim on me. And I think that, you know, through his word, my eyes stay open and my ears are able to hear him better. So in the last four years since my dad died, I think God has been teaching me 
the enormity of who he is and no longer the God that I want him to be. And I think a lot about what I was taught as a kid about who God is. Um, you know, my dad always told me that in Genesis, God is the light of the world and he is our breath of life. In Exodus, he was our warrior and our chain breaker. He was our provision. Um, in Esther, he was our courage. In Proverbs, um, he is our wisdom. And what I discovered is that in the New Testament, God is our grace and our redeemer, our savior, our Messiah. He is our place of rest. He is our anchor, but he is also our wings. And in the 10 years since, um, well now 14, gosh, I'm just going to keep ignoring those last four years. In the 14 years since I was baptized, I've discovered that God is both my creator and my father, but he is also my savior. And most importantly, he's now my ever-present indwelling spirit and help. And that came alive for me through reading the Bible, rather than looking at people and thinking, what is it that you have that I don't have? It's a relationship. It's an intimate relationship where the indwelling Holy Spirit resides in you and by staying in prayer and in his word and that aching want or that desire that we have is, is filled and that God designing us as empty vessels was not for us to fill ourselves up with our own strength or our own wants or our own desires, but so that we would fill ourselves up with his spirit so that we would overflow with his light and his truth. And so in the last four years, I've learned that my gifts are not for my benefit and they're not for the worldly benefit of the women that I coach or even my children, but rather they're to bring him glory. And that rather than using my ability to coach or to motivate or to inspire in the way that I had for 30 years, which was in that self-help, now it's called self-care, you've got this kind of worldly approach that now I know my mission is to help others understand that it's not whether you've got it or not. It's that God wants it. God wants all of it. He wants our brokenness, our mess. He wants our weakness. He wants every aspect of us. And he wants it in a way that we seek him first. Because if we do, then we may not get what we want, but we get what we need. And, and that is something that you just can't find in this world. And I think that God took didn't take, allowed me to wander for as many decades as I did, because I think my story is about relinquishing the struggle to relinquish our worldly identity, to claim our kingdom purpose. And where I spent most of my life defining who I was through my job, through my worldly labels, mom, sister, wife, daughter, Jew, <laughs> athlete, whatever it was that the, the small identity I gave myself, I had those identities claim so much importance in my life because I was ignorant of my true identity, which was a daughter of the king, which was my identity in Jesus Christ. And so reading the Bible has taught me, you know, who, not what does the world say I am or who I am, or what do I think of myself when I look in a mirror or hop on a scale or or win an award, or get a like on social media, I guess. Not that I, I'm 54. Social media is not that big a deal for me. I'm Generation X. We don't care about social media. But 
I realized that what the Bible says about me is my actual identity, that I'm wonderfully made, that I'm beautiful, that I'm God's delight, that I'm loved, that I am his temple for his indwelling Holy Spirit, that I'm his masterpiece in Ephesians. I love that line. And, you know, that I'm complete in Colossians and that in Second Timothy, that I have a spirit of self-control, that I don't have a spirit of timidity or fear. And so I pray every day now that whatever words God gives me, um, that I'm attuned to them, that I hear them, um, and that I use those words to point everyone that I encounter back to his truth. I pray that now that it's not my voice that resonates, um, which is something I used to cling to, but that it's the voice of God speaking through me that resonates with people and that I'm just merely a, a microphone. Probably most people that would know me would say megaphone, <laughs> um, a megaphone um, for God that they see the Holy Spirit light overflowing outwardly from me and that it becomes something so desirable to others that they can't help but try to seek that. So where do I struggle now in all of this? You know, I think I wrote an Instagram post recently about, you know, I used to sit in the back of a car with my sister. We were Jewish kids. Who's going to be the doctor? Who's going to be the lawyer? They had two kids. One of us had to be one or the other. By the way, my sister is a doctor. I am not a lawyer. And we were in the car arguing about it. And, you know, my parents were participating. Carol should be the lawyer. She never shuts up. And um, I found myself this past year being a Christian devotional author. And it's very funny to me <laughs> that of all the things that a Jewish kid's going to grow up to be, Christian devotional author is probably not in every Jewish parent's top three choices for their child. But um, here I am. <laughs> and um, I think that I battled. I think God's been trying in the last four years to get me to write this book. You know, that the Holy Spirit has been really pressing this in on me. And I think that I've resisted it because I have that enemy's voice in my head that I didn't grow up memorizing the Bible. I don't know it as well as everybody else. I still sit in church trying to quietly flip my Bible the right way to get to whatever the pastor's telling us today's passage is. You know, like, don't look at me. I know you all know which way to go. I don't know if, where am I? That's the enemy, right? He's just constantly whispering in my ear. You can't share God's word with people. You can't point people to a relationship with Christ. You don't know it as well as they do. And um, so I think I, over the last four years, I've been, um, I type my prayers because I am an ADD prayer. I pray for about two seconds and then I start thinking about laundry, dinner, grocery shopping. Did my kids pack that in their backpack? You know, all the things. And um, so I started to type my prayers. People see them a lot. It's in a lot of my writing. I kept busy and kind of kept that writing, those prayers sort of in a little separate place. And I was thinking, I was recovering from my mastectomy and I was writing a book on nutrition and wellness about seeking the kingdom of God first in that relationship. And um, my daughter was sitting down in the bed next to me and she was reading through these things and said, Mom, what is this? And I said, oh, that's just the prayers that I pray over you and your sisters um, about making sure that your identity stays in Christ. And it did turn into a 21-day devotional. And I think that that is my story, right, is that it's a story of claiming identity. 
and it's claiming my identity as, as Christ's child um, that I'm supposed to be sharing. And I know now that my story is part of his incomprehensible, unknowable plan, um, and that what I'm supposed to be doing is sharing and getting out of my own way, out of his way, <laughs> and so that he increases for others the way that he increased for me. So in my professional life, I used to say that I was a bridge between what people told me they wanted for their health and wellness and what they were willing to do. And I think now what I am is a bridge for people like me that feel excluded and distant and apart from Christ, not in a way that they are choosing not to have an intimate relationship with him, but in a way that they have no relationship with him. And that perhaps my simplistic or childlike understanding of the Bible is something that will open that book up for somebody else. And, um, you know, that's, that's my constant prayer is that I know that when you read God's word, that you can't help but learn his heart, that you can't help but hear his will for your life, that you will, in his word, be able to stand firmly in his love and anchored by his truth, and that the emptiness, the longing, the desires of your flesh become quieter as his voice and his spirit grow louder. And so, um, you know, I laugh because every day that I read the Bible, I'm always like, John is definitely my favorite book, mm, Romans. This morning, it was actually Matthew chapter six. Um, you know, it's every day that you open it. I mean, he's just there. He's just there waiting for you with open arms. And I spent 40 years putting another deadbolt on the door to my heart. I don't want my faith to be quiet anymore. I don't want it to be mine anymore. I want it to be something that points others to God because the world will keep us toiling in the bondage of its lie that we've got everything, that we can handle it, that we've got this, that we can rely on our own strength. But God doesn't want that small existence for us. He wants something so much grander and so much bigger than anything that we may suffer with or be blessed with in the course of our life. He truly does want all the things that are promised in Matthew 6.33. He wants to transform our hearts. He wants to renew our minds. He wants us to seek him above everything, to take him off the shelf and let him be the Lord and ruler of our life in every single area of it. And so I hope that my odd, willful, stubborn story um, helps people to a deeper relationship with Christ or to a new relationship with Christ. Carol is a character and I love her wit and and just I mean her her talking about her Jewish faith yeah. and the family dynamics I mean just and here we are you know we're in the Bible Belt we're in the South a large majority of our stories come from the South mm -hmm. but not all of you our listeners are in the South right. and so number one I hope that those of you that don't live around us can really appreciate Carol's story maybe more than we can right. I learned so much yeah, I loved at the end where she talked about um, after her father passed away. And one of the things that I told Carol after we recorded was I said, you know, that was such a gift that God gave you in the moment when your father did pass away that you just dug into his word and how 
his word just changed her. And I love how she brought together the Old Testament and the New Testament and all the names that she went through of wow. who Jesus is to us. Yeah. And and really, she kept telling us after we recorded just, you know, how much she changed. And Lindy, mm-hmm. you even said that, just how much she changed after her father passed away. Yes. And, and, you know, just keeping up with her and even on social media, just seeing truly the word come alive in her and her calling to to now write Um, Because she has written a 21-day devotional called I Am His, and it's available on Amazon. And and it's just a beautiful reminder of exactly what she just talked about of our identity in Christ. You know, one of the things that was so interesting to me was when she talked about putting Jesus on the shelf. And Mm -hmm. that really, when she put him on the shelf, it hindered her growth. Mm -hmm. That for a few years, she was on fire, and Mm -hmm. she, she was really excited, and it became very academic. And I think that it's so easy for us to, for our faith to become academic, mm-hmm. for it to become yeah. head knowledge. And she said, I only wanted him on my terms. Yeah. Yeah. And and that always is what limits us with the Lord, because we, like she said later, he doesn't want us to have a small existence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we really limit him and put him in a box so many times. Oh, yeah. We, we keep him on Sunday mornings. Right. You know, we go to church or, you know, attend church through online services right now um, for an hour. And then we go and live our lives. And we want, want him, like you said, on our terms. And I think, too, it was so beautiful, the imagery that she gave with that. Because, you know, that's really what we're about is mm-hmm. is sharing your story and that's taking him off the shelf yeah. and, and yeah. inserting him into your conversations, what mm-hmm. he's done in your life um, and how he's changed your life. You know, I think a lot of people that, that I encounter, you know, they're like, well, I'm not a good witness or I don't know how to witness right. to people. It's not about going and quoting scripture. It's like she said, it's, it's the experience that you've had with God, the relationship that you have with him. That is what turns people to Jesus. I love how that pastor just said, Hey, have you read the Bible? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> because guess what? We, we, we like to read a lot of, about God, but Carol truly found Jesus on the pages of her Bible. And I love that she was baptized at 40 years old, which, you know, the significance of the Jews wandering 40 years in the desert. So I thought that was really neat. And, you know, kind of wrapping all of that up, I think so many times people are afraid to speak about their faith because they don't know enough. And here she is someone, you know, that didn't even meet Jesus till she was 40. And she says, really, in the past four years, she feels like she's not qualified. Mm-hmm. And the enemy comes in mm-hmm. to her head telling her she's not qualified mm-hmm. to teach. Yet, I think you meet women all or men all day long, who are 50 years old, who would say the same thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. I'm not qualified enough. And that's what's amazing. God requires zero qualifications. Yeah. None. We just love him. Love him. And that's it. That's all that he asks. Um, So thanks for listening today. We hope that y'all loved Carol's story as much as we did. If you would share this this week, we're going to ask you to share the story with one friend. If you can think of one person, you know, that would really benefit from hearing the story, text it to them, email it to them, you know, share it on social media. I can think of five. Right, right. (laughs) I can think of a lot of people that would really Mm -hmm. get a lot from this. And so we'll put it in the show notes where you can buy Carol's book and where you can find her online as well because I'm guessing that just like us you're going to want to start following her and and learn and read and then you can follow us at storytellerslive.org and you can follow us on social media at um, Storytellers Live Podcast on Facebook and Instagram Thanks for the response to the Cambodia campaign. It's been incredible. We're excited. We're excited that we are building a Storytellers Well in Cambodia. So go to neverthirst.org slash storytellers.
and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.